It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Two years on, we're still wondering how the pandemic ends or whether it will end. But maybe we're asking the wrong questions. I've been criticised for saying that we're going to have to live with COVID. I don't want to either. I'm just trying to look at it from a realistic, long-term perspective and trying to place COVID within the context of all other health problems and indeed other societal problems that also need urgent attention. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Jennifer Ryan, standing in today for Serka and Connor. Today, how should we think about COVID-19 in the long term? One scientist gives his view. I'm uh, Tim Coburn. I'm Professor of Global Health Systems Epidemiology and Evaluation at UCL Institute for Global Health in London. What research have you done that is relevant to understanding how the COVID-19 pandemic should be handled and how it might come to an end? I've got training in microbiology, control of infectious disease and health economics. Um, And a lot of my research has been around um, health policy and systems, um, evaluation of interventions. I also do work on childhood pneumonia and I have, like many um, scientists, been contributing to pieces on COVID during the pandemic. When we look at the most pressing health problems in the world at the moment in terms of mortality, where is COVID on that list? So certainly up there in the UK, it's number three, I think, at the moment. It will be in the top 10 in most countries, I think, um, maybe outside the top 10 in some countries that have very high child mortality, um, maternal mortality, HIV, TB, malaria, things. Initially, at the outset of the pandemic, you supported a policy of elimination, total suppression of the disease through lockdowns, border closures, etc. But your position has changed now. You wrote a Twitter thread in December with the title of COVID thread on best we can do long term. In it, you start out by saying that elimination of the virus is impossible and you give two reasons. Can you tell us what those reasons are and explain them, please? Yeah, so I think we need to think of COVID as being here for the long term. So any interventions that we need will have to be permanent um, because there's no way that we're just going to get rid of it given how transmissible it is. And also given the waning immunity, given the fact that 
even after we've been infected or been vaccinated, within a few months we're susceptible again. So it's similar to the common cold in that regard. So it just makes elimination very difficult. So what you would need uh, to get down, firstly, to get down from the kind of incidents that we have in many countries around the world, I think the UK has something like half a million cases at the moment every day, new cases. Obviously, not all of them are recorded. You'd need a really harsh lockdown incredibly harsh lockdown, closing down everything. And I think two years into the pandemic, that would just fail because um, people just won't adhere to it sufficiently. You'd need close to 100% adherence and you wouldn't get that. And there may even be social unrest and harmful, very harmful effects of such a policy. And so that would fail and then the infections would just come back anyway. Even if you could get down to low incidence, say you're already in a country that has low incidence, in order to keep COVID out, you'd need to maintain uh, border closures or very strict border quarantine perpetually. So, so I think countries that have done well at the beginning of the pandemic, like New Zealand or Taiwan, and I do applaud the way that they did that from the outset and avoided, you know, they've saved countless thousands of lives. If we'd done that in the UK, maybe 150,000 lives would be saved. They're not going to be able to maintain that forever, especially when they see within the next year or so many countries controlling the burden of COVID so that it's no longer a top 10 health problem, the costs of maintaining such measures are just too high. And jumping on every case with the super harsh lockdown, it's just too high of something that may not be a top 10 health problem. And what about a global effort to eliminate the virus? Why could that not work if vaccines were distributed globally and coordinated action was taken to suppress the virus over a period of time? Um, so I'm actually amazed that some experts are still calling, calling for globally coordinated mass suppression. I mean, you're effectively asking 8 billion people to do exactly the same thing at the same time. Um, I mean, it's, it's, when you think of it on that level, it's crazy that people even think it's possible. Um, and even if you got to 100% vaccine coverage, you're still waning immunity. And so all of these interventions we have, none of them are going to be perfect. None of them are going to have 100% adherence. You're not going to coordinate all the countries of the world at once. Um, you know, we're trying to do that with climate change, which is a far easier problem than eliminating COVID, in my opinion. And then even then, you'd have the animal reservoirs. Um, and if you're controlling the burden of COVID so that it's no longer a top health problem, why would you even try to do it, given all the harm that it would cause? So if we take it that you're correct and elimination is impossible, that means we need to aim for something else. At the moment, COVID is a top three health problem around the world. You've written that we should be aiming to reduce the burden so it's no longer a top 10 health problem. And you've calculated that that is possible in 2022. How? Well, with scaling up the vaccines and the drugs, Pfizer have produced a, an amazing new drug called Paxlovid, which reportedly reduces hospitalisation by nearly 90%. Um, and so in the unvaccinated and those who are vulnerable, this will be another major tool that will reduce the severity um, massively and make it so it's no longer a top 10 health problem. The other big thing is the severity of reinfection. And I think after the Omicron wave passes in the next few weeks or maybe a couple of months, um, most people, especially the unvaccinated, would have been infected at least once. And so then on reinfection, they're likely to get less severe disease. And this is actually still an open question. There's not many studies that address this problem, the severity of reinfection versus primary infection. But there was a recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which had very encouraging results in this regard, suggesting that 
um, severity was reduced hugely on reinfection compared to primary infection. So that study didn't have that many older people in it. Um, so that it needs to be repeated in the UK and many other settings as well. Um, but overall, I'm optimistic with the vaccines, the drugs and lower reinfection severity and that Omicron may be the last major wave that that, that is hugely disruptive. Other waves may, well, should hopefully be less disruptive because of those three things, vaccines, drugs and reinfection being less severe. And people are understandably worried about new variants. So what about them? What if a new variant emerged this year and it might take a while for a vaccine to be ready and distributed for that? Do you think that could push a return to normality out beyond the end of this year into next year? I mean, it's always possible that you get some incredibly severe variant that does still result in a severe wave. But I think that makes COVID no less eliminatable. We still can't eliminate it. But I'm actually hopeful because of vaccines, drugs and and reinfection being less severe, that it won't be such a disruption. Will it be necessary to keep up measures like mask wearing, social distancing and a focus on improved indoor air quality? Or do you think that vaccines and drugs will be enough on their own? So I think vaccines and drugs will do the large majority of the work in reducing the disease burden by maybe 95% or more relative to the beginning of the pandemic before we had vaccines and drugs. Um, but air quality interventions are needed and they should be heavily invested in really because they don't, they're not just beneficial for COVID, they're beneficial for many other infectious diseases spread through the air um, and also for concentration, lowering CO2 levels and so on. So that, that, that should be done and they're not disruptive importantly, so they're easily sustainable Whereas something like masks are less sustainable, especially if you've reduced the burden so COVID is no longer top, longer a top 10 health problem, and there may be a, a bigger reluctance to wear masks. That said, I think they're still important when incidence is very high, but they should be voluntary at some stage when we've dealt with the disease burden. The idea of distributing vaccines to countries where levels of vaccination are still really low How important is that going to be, especially given we know now that uneven vaccine distribution might increase the possibility of new variants arising, just like Omicron did in South Africa? That side of it is incredibly important. Um, So we really need to do much more to get the vaccines to every country in the world. I really think there needs to be patent waivers now. There needs to be a TRIPS waiver a trade-related intellectual property rights waiver at the World Trade Organization, which many countries have been calling for for well over a year, that needs to be implemented and vaccines need to be manufactured as well as distributed in as many countries as possible um, because it's just not happening fast enough otherwise. And the, the vaccine companies may say otherwise, but it's just not happening at anywhere near the speed. And the same goes for the new drugs, um, again, reducing it massively. So combined with the vaccines you could easily reduce the burden by 95% or more, but obviously only in the countries where those drugs and vaccines are scaled up. So I I think we need patent waivers, massive scale-up of production everywhere, so this will benefit health hugely and also the economy to stop disruptions from COVID. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Professor Tim Coburn. We'll talk about long COVID and how to put a number on a person's health. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You address the problem of long COVID. There are some truly scary things emerging about the long-term impact of COVID, including its potential long-term impact on cells in the brain. And here's where your analysis might bring people outside their comfort zone, because what you do is calculate how bad the burden of long COVID might be using something called a quality adjusted life year. Do we say QALYs or is qualies, there a... Qualies. Qualies. So first of all, in layman's terms, can you explain what that is? So quality adjusted life year is used in um, health economic assessment to compare the burden of different diseases And it's very important as it's a measure of, it combines both um, life lost from mortality, so dying um, before you would otherwise, and also with morbidity. So your quality of life when you're alive, which is obviously reduced when you're ill. And so it's a combined measure of both morbidity and mortality. What impact will long COVID have in terms of qualies? And how does that compare to other health problems we're familiar with, like dementia or cancer or heart disease? So I think this is an urgent question that needs proper quantification. So the questions that need to be answered as soon as possible are what proportion of COVID infections actually leads to brain damage or permanent disability, as many people are cl- claiming? How how common is that? I I suspect it may not be so common. We all know many people who have had COVID and many people even who have had long COVID and have recovered. So that's an urgent question that needs addressing. The second one then is whether the long COVID incidence and duration reduces with vaccination. And I think there is early evidence to suggest that is the case. Um, And also with new drug treatments, including new drugs tailored for long COVID, which I hope will also be coming out later this year. So, yeah, we need to find out more about that as well. So we need to quantify the burden of long COVID. But the comparison with cancer and dementia was mainly on the on the fact that pretty much everyone who has cancer and dementia has huge losses in quality of life, where only a small fraction of people who have COVID have those huge long-term losses in quality of life. And this is all well and good, I suppose, but it might be cold comfort for people who are battling long COVID themselves. Will people accept this sort of trade-off based way of looking at their own health? So I think I understand completely that it would be very difficult to accept. But as I was taking pains to explain, I don't think there's any other choice. We can't eliminate COVID. We can't have lockdowns and border closures for the next 50 years. So even though none of us want to, we're going to have to have COVID in our lives in in some 
sense. So, so obviously I've been criticised for saying that we're going to have to live with COVID. I don't want to either. I'm just trying to look at it from a realistic long-term perspective and trying to place COVID within the context of all other health problems and indeed other societal problems that also need urgent attention. And I think too many people are hung up on COVID to the extent that nothing else is relevant. And we can't think in terms of policy like that, especially two years into the pandemic. I mean, there was a reluctance to look... I was interested in looking at qualities back in 2020, but there's a huge reluctance to look at that because it was felt that COVID was so dominating society that it would just be too difficult a conversation. But I think two years in, in, we need that conversation and we need to agree on what a, a suitable end of pandemic goal is, whether that is reducing COVID burden by 95%, so it's no longer a top 10 health condition or something else. So we need that conversation. To get away from COVID for a minute, at the start of this interview, you said you worked on health economics and I guess the idea of qualies is part of that the calculating of how much we should be willing to sacrifice to save lives or improve health. With COVID, you're arguing we should not be willing to sacrifice too much. But are there situations where the imbalance is the other way, where we're not willing to sacrifice enough? Yeah, so, so I do um, health economic evaluation of interventions and it's actually shocking to people in high-income countries when you explain how little money is needed to save people's lives. I mean, we're talking about, so So we use disability adjusted life years, which is similar to the quality, so like a year of people's lives. It, it can be, it only requires little as $50 US dollars of investment to save a whole year of someone's life in many countries in the world. Um, but that's not done because the, the, the investment's not there, the money's not there, they're prioritizing other things. So yeah, it's very important to consider trade-offs. You know, even whole lives can be saved for $2,000, people's children, babies, so on. At a political level, there has been something of a reluctance to talk about drawing a line on how much we should spend or sacrifice to prevent COVID. Is that a problem? Yeah, I mean, we have a natural aversion to that. But at the end of the day, there's only so much resources in the world and how much we spend on health and how much we spend on each person really matters. So, you know, if you find it uncomfortable that someone's life is only worth $2,000 in Nigeria, for example, then you need to do more to make sure that that health budget in Nigeria is bigger or, or there is more money available to spend on those things. The same goes for the UK, health spending. You know, we're trading off our health against military spending, against, you know, things like Trident. How much health... You could save thousands of people's lives instead of having Trident nuclear weapons or instead of corrupt contracts to people in the test and trace and so on. You know, so the, the, the fact of the matter is that there are these trade-offs. In Ireland at the moment, the big COVID talking point is around the reopening of schools. Some people think it's too risky with so much COVID around still, but others, including the government, argue that schools aren't high risk and that children's education and their well-being are what's at stake. Is it possible to quantify the balance of harm between COVID and those sorts of social outcomes in a way that you might do with qualities, for example? So that's very difficult to do because you do need a good data, especially on long-term outcomes on education and stuff. But I think it should be fairly obvious that schooling should not be disrupted 
especially now, um, given what we're facing, you should, the schools should be the last things to close and the first things to open. So if we've still got pubs open, there's no way we can close schools. On the, on the same time, though, we should invest, you know, it's only, what, £100 for an air quality system in a class, classroom air filters and CO2 monitors. Very little money, and that would have huge benefits over years in terms of just children not missing school because they don't have a cold or they don't have covid huge amounts of schooling could be gained from indoor air quality interventions in schools. So we should absolutely invest in that. That's easily going to be very cost effective. So I don't understand why those investments are not being made. They are being made in many other countries. What about the economics of vaccines? Have we got that right? The OECD estimated it would cost $50 billion to vaccinate the entire planet. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, I think the issue with vaccines is not just about giving it away. It's about enabling countries to produce their own. But yeah, the amount of money is small compared to trillions of dollars of economic disruption, increasing poverty and everything else that the pandemic's causing um, because of lack of vaccines, lack of drugs and so on. I just want to quote something that you said in that Twitter thread. You said, overall, though, despite being a shit situation, I honestly believe it will get progressively less shit each year. Sounds yes. pretty positive. So can you explain, what do you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by less shit? So obviously we're all having a, a bit of a shit time in the pandemic. Um, and But I think 2022 will actually be a bit of a transition year, starting off very badly with Omicron, but after the Omicron wave, as I was saying earlier, I don't think it will get as bad again um, because we have the vaccines, we have the drugs, we have the prior immunity. And so 2023 should then be better than 2022, which was better than 2021. 2020 and 2021 will arguably be equally shit, but um, we'll make certainly the first half of 2021. Just to play devil's advocate now, let's say you're wrong and we fail to lessen the burden of COVID into the future it doesn't get less shit year on year. Vaccines and new drugs don't have the impact that we expected and hoped they would. What's the worst case scenario? Uh, so the worst case scenario would be that COVID would return, would stay at number three health condition, maybe even return to number one, like it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And that would be obviously a huge tragedy. But I still don't think we could eliminate COVID because, you know, doing harsh lockdowns, border closures, these will all do net harm anyway. We'll get no closer to eliminating COVID when it's this transmissible, assuming that the new variants are also as transmissible as Omicron or, or more transmissible, and we still have the waning immunity, we're, still, we're just stuck. But I'm optimistic that it won't be that bad for the reasons that I said. Could your arguments be used as an excuse for us to just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, nothing we can do, let's just get on with it, when there are many measures such as proper mask wearing, ventilation, to name just two, where we could be doing an awful lot better? So I've, some people are actually responding to my thread in that way. And, and that's really, um, yeah, I'm really not agreeing with that at all. We absolutely should be doing what we can, but recognise the limitations. And we also need to recognise that we're doing a lot, even now. I mean, I, you know, I don't like the, the current UK government, but we've got huge amounts of vaccination. We've got huge amounts of testing. We've got a mask mandate. We've got Plan B working from home. We've got an incredible range of things that we're doing already, but I agree that we need to 
invest in the indoor air quality. That should have been done a long time ago and it should still be done because we're going to have COVID for a long time and it'll help keep case numbers down. It might make another additional few percent um, difference on the on the burden um, and doing things like that that are not disruptive to people's lives. Um, but we are, we should also recognise that we're doing a lot and we're in a very difficult situation right now with Omicron. Um, I mean, short of a harsh lockdown, I don't think we can do much. Omicron threw a real spanner in the works this winter and scuppered plans for a more normal, quote unquote, normal Christmas, despite widespread vaccination and other public health measures. It seems like COVID is going to be most serious in the winter months uh, into the future. So in the shorter term, how do you see next winter panning out? Yeah, so so they, it is likely to have seasonal transmission just because we're indoors more in the winter um, and other factors related to the winter. So we should prepare accordingly. Uh, the biggest preparation, I think, should be in the NHS, making sure that there's more capacity. Um, the investment in the NHS is long overdue. And so that's that's a critical issue. Obviously, there's only so much we can do by by next winter. And it may be that mask wearing will be appropriate in some of the time in the winter as well. Um, but if we got the indoor air quality sorted by then, which we really should have, that will make a difference. But also I think with the drugs available then um, and vaccines and reinfections, it may not be as bad to start with next winter, but we can certainly do those other things to make sure next winter is less bad. All right, that's great. Thanks a million. That's it for today. In the News will be back on Monday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 